the end of the path is freedom. It's open to all of us. All we have to do is begin the journey to be facing towards the light. And some people will progress slowly and some people will progress quickly and it does not matter. As long as we're going in the direction of enlightenment and freedom and peace, Welcome to the Joseph Goldstein Insight Hour. This podcast is an expression of our shared interest in self-discovery. Join Joseph as he shares his deep knowledge of the path of mindfulness. If you are interested in supporting this podcast, please go to BeHereNowNetwork.com slash Joseph. One person might describe the path that's just in front of us right now. You know, watch out for that step and, and go around the turn over there. <coughs> One person might describe the view of the peak. Right? I don't know how it looks up there in the clouds or wherever. That description is going to be totally different than the description of the boulder that we have to avoid right in front of us. Right? Some person might describe what one does when one reaches the peak. Oh, one dances around the top and sing songs or whatever one does. That description is completely different than, than both the vision of the top and also the, the steps along the path. All the descriptions are merely different aspects of this journey. We all have to walk up the path, have the vision of the top, and then express it in whichever way we do. Right? But we read or hear of different descriptions which are just relaying different aspects of this journey. And we think that they're different, right? There's one path to the top. And once we're there, it will unfold as a will what we do. Right? As I understand the practice of Zazen, it leads very much to a moment-to-moment -moment awareness. As with all practices of mindfulness, it starts with a with a um, the development of a certain amount of concentration. Right? Unless the mind is concentrated somewhat, you cannot be very mindful. You cannot develop insight. And that's why, like in this technique, we start with the rising, falling, or the in-out breath. That's a concentration technique to just stay on that object. After a certain minimal level of one-pointedness, the mind has the ability to sit back and just observe the flow. And I think that's what's meant in Zen. There are a lot of Zen stories about the development of moment-to-moment -moment Zen. Moment-to-moment right? -moment awareness of what's happening. There may be more of an emphasis in the beginning on the concentration aspect. And that is a valid technique. You know, you can, you can approach the development of wisdom by developing samadhi first and then applying it to the development of insight. You can do them simultaneously. It depends. There are different approaches, all equally valid. There is very much suffering in the world. Every day there are many millions of people who do not have enough food, who do not have proper shelter, who are experiencing 
extremes of heat and of cold, of very oppressive living conditions. There are a lot of people in hospitals whose bodies are filled with pain and unable to avoid that pain. And many more people in the world who do not even have facilities with which to deal with illness. Many people who, as illness, as illness comes to the body, just must deal with it as best they can in very primitive circumstances. A lot of pain, a lot of suffering involved in disease and illness of the body as the body begins to decay. There is a lot of pain and suffering involved in the conflicts, the violent conflicts between people, between countries, in situations of war or fighting. Very many people who are, who are helpless in the hands of their enemies, people who want to simply inflict more and more pain upon them, helpless in that situation. There is so much pain involved in giving birth, both to the mother and the child. A lot of pain as the, as the body begins to decay, as the body begins to fall apart, as it inevitably must. There's a lot of pain and suffering in old age, a very decrepit, invalid body. There's pain and anxiety and depression and anger and lust, and worry, and frustration. Our minds are, in, are, are liable to this kind of suffering. There's suffering when we're joined with things we don't like, when unpleasant circumstances <coughs> arise and we don't like them. There's a great deal of suffering involved. And there's a lot of suffering when we are separated from those people or situations or ideas for which we have a great love and attachment, trying desperately to hold on to something which is disappearing, a lot of pain, a lot of suffering. Death is suffering, the, the breaking up of the elements of the body. The four primary elements described as earth, air, fire, and water are called the great elements, great in their destructive power. As long as they are in relative harmony and balance, we experience a certain ease of the body. It is a very temporary, impermanent state of balance, a very precarious balance. And throughout our lives, these, the balance of these elements is often disturbed. And in death, they finally become so imbalanced, they break apart. 
It's these very elements in our body, the great destructive power in them, the same elements which are responsible for the arising and explosion of the earth, the sun, the solar system, whole galaxies, these same primary elements of matter have the potential strength and destructiveness to destroy the physical universe. That's what we're made of. That's what this body is, these, these, these same material elements. And for a very brief time, indeed, we enjoy a balanced state. Always leading, always going in the direction of more and more imbalance, unequilibrium, destructiveness. The body is going to die. There is no way that having taken birth, we are not going to die. We are going to end as corpses. A very painful situation, one that is very full of suffering. This is the human condition, and the human, the human plane is one of the happy places of existence, one of the happy destinies of fortunate rebirth. There are planes of existence which are filled with even much greater suffering, which arise as the, as the result of our own unwholesome deeds. We create for ourselves the hell worlds and the, the hungry ghost realms and all the lower worlds of suffering. They're not created by any divine being who, who casts people down into them. They are created by our own states of mind, our own unwholesome mind. This is expressed very clearly in our language. When we say a person is burning up with anger, that is literally happening. We're burning every time we, every time we get angry. A person is burning with desire, burning here and now and creating worlds of burning. A lot of pain, a lot of suffering. There was no beginning to this wandering on in samsara. Endless repetition of sights and sounds and smells and tastes and touches and thoughts, day after day after day, endlessly tossed about in this whirlwind. We are enjoying some extraordinarily good karma in our present situation just now, in comfortable surroundings, a fair degree of ease of body, the chance to practice the Dharma. But it is like a very small island in a very turbulent ocean. It's a spot of calm in a, in a great whirlwind of samsaric forces, of greed and of hatred and delusion, filled potentially with enormous pain, enormous suffering. 
It's said that once one has taken rebirth in a lower plane of existence, how extraordinarily difficult it is to again have the opportunity of a human rebirth. And the example is given of a blind turtle who lives at the bottom of a vast ocean. And on the surface of the ocean is a, is a wooden ring, a yoke of wood, just floating, tossed about by the wind and the waves. And this blind turtle surfaces once every hundred years. The odds that that turtle will surface just at the spot where that wooden yoke is and, and place his head through that wooden ring, the odds of that happening are greater than the chances of someone who has taken birth in a lower world having a, having a good rebirth. Those worlds are filled with, with greed and with hatred and with violence and with anger and with pain and with suffering. Very difficult to develop wholesome karma, wholesome states of mind there. It takes a very long time to again have the opportunity for a, for a happy rebirth. A lot of suffering in samsara. It's a very heavy place. When it is not understood, when we are subject mechanically to the whirlwind aspect, we are all trailing an infinite amount of past karma, both wholesome and unwholesome. And as long as we don't understand the law, the Dharma, the way things are working, we are subject at any time to the coming to fruition of that whole vast accumulation of past activities. This is the burden we're carrying around. But we don't like to look at it. We don't like to, to see the state of, of pain and suffering involved in this samsaric existence. And especially in this country, in the West, there's very much of plastic diversions to keep our mind from seeing it. We don't even want to hear about it. We don't want to hear about pain. We dress up corpses as if they're going to a party. We don't look, we don't look at the fact of existence. We try to cover it all up to make believe that it's not there. Very unrealistic, very destructive because it keeps us in a state of sleep with regard to what's happening. And in the sleeping state, we are more than ever subject to the pain and suffering involved. There is an inherent painfulness in the very nature of existence in the fact that it is all empty all impermanent, nothing substantial there. We try desperately to hold on to different aspects of the mind-body process, or to people, or to situations, grasping at some, at some straw as if that could bring us a lasting peace and happiness. Not understanding that the whole, the whole universe, mental and physical, 
is merely a flow of empty, impermanent process. Nothing there to hold on to. Full of suffering and pain to which we are very much subject. Birth is suffering. Disease is suffering. Old age is suffering. Death is suffering. Being, being with what we don't like is suffering. Being separated from, from what we like is suffering. <coughs> but we don't like to hear it. We don't like to face it. This is the first noble truth. The first truth of the Buddha a very realistic appraisal of what this whole, this whole round of existence is about. He did not stop there. If, if he had seen correctly this truth of suffering and not gone further, it would have been a rather gloomy prospect. Caught as we are in this, in this wheel of agony, Through the power of his enlightenment, not only was he able to see without, without bias, without, without colored glasses, to see clearly and directly the state of affairs, he was also able to penetrate into the causes of this suffering. The fact of pain and suffering exists. <clears throat> what are the causes behind it? The causes are our attachment. We are clinging to our own agony because we don't see things clearly. We cling to the pain. We're grasping at the suffering, making it continue, continuing on this wheel. There are four basic kinds of attachments which are, which are such great chains, which keep us so bound to this wheel of suffering. <coughs> and the first is attachment to sense desire, to sense pleasure. We take such delight in pleasant sights and pleasant sounds and pleasant smells and tastes and pleasant touch feelings. There is pleasure there. There are moments of pleasure. Very impermanent. Very momentary. And yet we, we become so infatuated with that sense pleasure that we grasp and cling for more and more. Not seeing that that very, that very grasping and clinging, which was in fact the very reason we, we took a body again and again and again. We have eyes because we wanted to see. We have ears because we wanted to hear. We have a body because we want it to feel, to feel touch, pleasant touch sensations. Not understanding the, the overwhelming suffering and pain involved in all this, entranced by those moments, those momentary pleasures of the senses, so attached we are to them. It's a very great bondage. It's a chain which keeps us on this wheel of samsara. The example is given 
of just how we become entangled in sense pleasure. Of a monkey who was living high, high in the Himalayas, living in the forest, very free, very independent. He became curious about what was happening down below. So he comes down the mountain, and it seems that some hunter or trapper had laid a trap of tar, of the black pitch, in which to, in which to catch animals. And the monkey came down and had never seen it before, and he tested it with one, with one foot. And he put one foot in, and he got stuck. And in his effort to free himself, he puts his other foot in, trying to, trying to free the first, and of course both get stuck. And then the third and the fourth legs, he puts into the tar trying to extricate himself from the situation, and all get stuck. Very frantically, aware that he is caught helpless in the power of that trapper and hunter, he puts his, his head in it to, to pry himself out, and his head gets stuck. Caught, bound, trapped. We enjoy one sense pleasure and perhaps experience some of the suffering involved in it. In an effort to get out of the suffering, we sink into another sense pleasure to forget about the suffering of the first and we get more and more bound. And a third and a fourth. In an effort to escape suffering, we become more and more involved in it because we don't understand how the law is working. Attachment to sense pleasure, clinging, grasping at these momentary pleasures is a very great bondage. It what, it's what keeps us in this cycle of life and death and rebirth on this wheel endlessly. The second great attachment we have is attachment to our beliefs and opinions. We have so many opinions about things, about things being right or wrong or, or good or bad. The opinions very much conditioned by our particular background and circumstances and education, but we cling so much to the opinions. It's as if we go around permanently with a pair of colored glasses, seeing the whole world through pink or green or blue, blue colored glasses, imagining the world to be that way. And so attached to those glasses that we can't take them off to see how things are free of bias. Attachment to belief and opinions is a very strong bondage, a very strong fetter, which keeps us from seeing things clearly. In the sutra of the third patriarch in China, two very beautiful lines. It says, do not seek the truth. Only cease to cherish opinions. If we give up our attachment to our beliefs and opinions, the whole world is revealed. We need not make any special effort if we are seeing with a clear vision. 
and our vision can only be clear when we give up this attachment, this, this cherishing to our own particular way of looking at things, our particular, our particular opinions and ideas. The third great attachment <coughs> is attachment to rites and rituals as a way of reaching enlightenment, freedom. We light some incense in front of the Buddha and do a few prayers and he will take care of us. Or we put some flowers behind, in front of the picture of some great saint or guru and everything is okay. Or we make a trip to India and take a bath in the Ganges and all our sins are purified and enlightenment is bound to come. A very, very great hindrance. This attachment to that kind of adherence to ceremony and ritual as being as being the means, being the way to enlightenment, to freedom. And the fourth great attachment, which is at the very center of all the others, which is the very hub of the whole wheel of samsara, that, that attachment around which the whole, the whole wheel of suffering revolves is the attachment to the idea of self, the idea of I, of me or mine. And in truth, the whole world does revolve about that concept. All beings in this world and in, and in all worlds live their lives based around this idea that there is a self here, there is an I. If there is an I, there is an other, there is division, there is separation. There is threatening and defensiveness. There is anger and desire. Possessiveness, attachment, all for the well-being of this non-existent self. Self is a concept only, but a concept which is so deeply ingrained, a concept with which we are so, so heavily conditioned to believe in, this concept of I, that it keeps us very bound to the wheel of samsara, to the wheel of suffering. And there is a very pithy epigram which relates this idea of I and self to the fact of suffering. And it is, as long as there is any one to suffer, he will. <laughs> it's a very strong bondage our attachment to the concept, very difficult to penetrate, very difficult to get beyond. And very much of the path towards freedom and enlightenment has to do with seeing into the nature of that concept, freeing ourselves from its bondage. The truth of suffering 
The second noble truth is the causes of suffering, these attachments. Attachments to sense desire, to opinion, to rites and rituals, to the, to the concept of self. Four great bonds. <clears throat> the power of the Buddha's enlightenment consisted of the fact that he was able to see clearly both the first and the second truths, the fact of suffering and the causes behind it. But also if it had rested there, if it had remained there, it would not have been so helpful to us. Here is suffering and here are the causes and what do we do? The third noble truth is the truth of the cessation of suffering, the ending of this pain, the release, the freedom, the peace, the state of nirvana, that state which is off this wheel. And that is to be understood in two ways. In one way, nirvana means the extinction of defilements, the extinction in the mind of greed, of hatred, of delusion, the putting out of the fires of the mind, the coolness, the ease, the peace of a mind free of these unwholesome states. And that kind of nirvana is a very moment-to-moment -moment possibility. Every moment that we are experiencing, free of greed, hatred, and delusion, we are in a state of momentary nirvana, of momentary peace. <coughs> nirvana is to also be understood as the cessation of this whole mind-body impermanent process. That state which exists, which is when this process stops. And the experience of that kind of cessation of this process of suffering is an experience of release, of putting down the burden of silence, the highest happiness. It's a state of rest. In India, in the mountains, most of the means of conveying things up the mountain is human power, body power. And you see these incredibly old very decrepit-looking men and women carrying the most unbelievable burdens up these mountains. Thirty feet long beams of wood strapped to their backs with ropes, climbing a very steep mountain, this being the way to earn enough money to eat that day. the burden of having to carry that up the mountain. 
and the feeling of ease when that burden can be taken off. This mind-body process is like carrying that unbelievable load up this very difficult place. Such a heavy burden we are carrying around. And the bliss of putting the burden down. The bliss of release from pain and suffering. Like being consumed with an, with an overwhelming, agonizing pain in the body, day and night, around which all our energy and attention focuses, filled with this excruciating pain, and then in a moment, the pain dissipates, the pain goes away. The feeling of relief, of ease, of happiness. This mind-body process, in comparison to that state of rest, is like this overwhelming, consuming pain. The third noble truth is the ending of that pain, the bliss of, of peace and of silence and of rest, the putting down of the burden, the very highest happiness. The fourth noble truth is the way, the path, how to do it. It's not that some being up in the sky determines this person gets enlightened and this person goes to hell. There is a path. There is a path leading to hell and a path leading to enlightenment. And each of us is free to choose which path we walk upon. If we walk upon the path to freedom, to peace, to silence of mind, the experience of that state happens. It is not any mystical mumbo-jumbo of appeasing certain beings or gods or whatever. If we cultivate the factors of enlightenment, when they reach maturity, that experience of freedom happens. The path is there for us to walk upon. And it has very much been described as the middle way. Not overindulgence in sensual pleasures, which keeps, which keeps us very bound. Not involved in self-torture or self-mortification to beat down the self, which does not exist in the first place. A very middle, balanced approach to living. Not clinging, not condemning, not identifying with things. Being fully aware, experiencing fully every moment. In that fullness and balance of mind, it is out of that state that enlightenment can happen. The state in which all suffering ceases. People are motivated to walk upon this path for very many different reasons. And one of the the classic descriptions of motivation is that of the Buddha himself, the Bodhisattva, before he became Buddha, before he left his home. He was visited by three divine messengers, three messengers from heaven. And the circumstances of that visit were as follows. When he was born, when the Bodhisattva was born, 
it was predicted that he would either become a universal monarch, a world-turning emperor, or an all-enlightened Buddha. And of course, his father, being the king, wanted him to become the world-turning monarch, the emperor. He did not want him to, to become the Buddha. And he did everything possible to prevent this bodhisattva, this young prince, from seeing any suffering at all. And he created palaces for the rainy season and palaces for the summer and palaces for the winter season, filled with beautiful women and music and all the sense delights so that the, the bodhisattva would never feel dissatisfied. One day, this prince wanted to go out into the city to see what the outside life was all about. And the king ordered that the whole city should be made beautiful, all painted and with flowers and all kinds of unpleasant sights removed. And then the prince goes out. But three heavenly messengers came to see the prince. The first one was a very diseased being, a body who was just filled with disease. And the prince had never seen it. And he asked the person who was driving his chariot, what, what is happening there? And the charioteer explains that that's a body which has become ill, which has become sick. And the bodhisattva asked that that happens to everyone or it's just a, a unique thing. Charioteer answered that that's, that's an inevitable consequence of having a body, that it will become diseased. He goes a little further and he sees a very old, decrepit man bent over, who can't see and who can't hear. Very, very much subject to the infirmities of old age. And again, the Bodhisattva asks what, what's happening. And the charioteer replies that anybody who takes birth is going to get to the state of an infirm body, of a body beginning to decay where the faculties are not working, and that it happens to everyone. He goes a little further and he sees a corpse. And again he asks, and again the charioteer replies, that that is the end for all beings, that no one escapes the fact of death. This is the first time the Buddha, the, the Bodhisattva had ever seen these things, and it touched within him lifetime after lifetime of work on himself and, and the development of compassion. And he felt overwhelming compassion for the suffering involved for all beings and the desire to find a way out of the suffering. These were the three heavenly messengers which came to him and which prompted him later to, to renounce the whole household scene he was in to search for a way out of suffering to search for a way of enlightenment and peace. These three heavenly messengers are all around us. Mostly we don't pay them heed. And in a lot of the Tibetan tradition, a lot of the stories involved in it, of people dying and coming before Yama, the god of death, having to account for their deeds. And, and Yama says, weren't you aware of the three messengers I sent to you? And most people are not. 
most people never reflect, never, never take seriously these facts of our life. Okay, that's one very strong motivation for walking on the path, both to ease our own suffering and to be a help to all other beings out of compassion for the suffering of all beings to seek a way to the end of suffering. But there are other motivations, and the motivation does not really matter. There is one story of a cousin of the Buddha. After the Buddha's enlightenment in Bodh Gaya, he went back to his hometown, and many of his relatives and family and people in, in his home city very much impressed and in awe of the Buddha's enlightenment, of his presence, became monks and nuns in the order. This cousin of his, it seems, just on the day the Buddha returned, was about to marry this beautiful princess, very much infatuated with this ravishing beauty. But out of respect for the Buddha, when the Buddha came to visit, this cousin of his took the Buddha's bowl and then, then returned with the Buddha to the forest, meaning to, to give the bowl back to the Buddha. Always waiting for the Buddha to take the bowl and say, okay, you may now go back to your beautiful princess. The Buddha never said that. <laughs> and just went back to the forest, the place they were staying. And then the Buddha said, wouldn't you like to become a monk? And of course, he did not want to become a monk at all. But out of respect, the commanding presence of a being, a fully enlightened being, he agreed in the moment, and he became a monk, and he joined the order. But all the time he was a monk, he kept thinking of his, of his beautiful princess back in the palace who was waiting for him. He could not really do the monk trip very well. <laughs> and the Buddha knew. He knew what was happening. And he met with his cousin, and through his psychic power, through the power of, of his mind, the Buddha contrived for his cousin to have a vision of one of the heavenly worlds. And in this heavenly world, there were thousands and thousands of beautiful celestial nymphs. And his cousin was overwhelmed. <laughs> and the Buddha said, who is more beautiful, these celestial nymphs or your princess back in the palace? And he said, compared to these celestial nymphs, my princess is like a monkey with her nose cut off. No comparison whatsoever. The Buddha said, if you follow my instructions, I promise you 500 celestial nymphs. He made a bargain. His cousin agreed very quickly. So with this thought in mind, oh, I'm going to get all these nymphs. <laughs> so he starts to practice. And he starts watching his breath and doing the walking and practicing mindfulness. No but he was practicing. The motivation was questionable. <laughs> the practice was carried on in earnest. He practiced, and he experienced the fruit of the practice. His mind had, had been very ripe. He had done very much work in the past. 
and his practice his practice brought to maturity all those all those factors of enlightenment he practiced and he walked upon the path and he experienced enlightenment freedom and he went back to the buddha then and said you are released from your promise i understand now and the buddha of course knew what had happened and and said that as soon as his cousin had reached enlightenment he knew that he was released from this promise to provide all these nymphs. <laughs> the cousin's mind had become free. What motivates us to begin walking on the path does not really matter. Right? We have visions of celestial nymphs, and we begin walking, it's fine. We have a very great vision of suffering and feelings of compassion, and we begin walking, it's fine. The end of the path is freedom. It's open to all of us. All we have to do is begin the journey to be facing towards the light. And some people will progress slowly and some people will progress quickly and it does not matter. As long as we're going in the direction of enlightenment and freedom and peace, and that very much depends upon our own effort. <laughs>